Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, your co-host. Our guest is a dear friend to both Ian and me. He is a filmmaker, writer, producer, recording artist, entrepreneur, earned his Renaissance man stripes from a body of work that garnered him multiple Grammys, Billboard, Telly, Addy, and Dove Awards and nominations. As a recording artist, he's sold over one million albums worldwide, garnered two Grammy nominations, and made history as the only artist to twice win Billboard Music Video Awards for self-directed music videos. Something really cool about our guest, too, is he fronted and fronts the rock band Chagall Guevara. And I'll just say... They did a reunion concert at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee, and Ian and I both attended that. And our guest, Steve Taylor, has still got it. Oh, I love this guy. And one of my very favorite things about him currently is he serves as filmmaker in residence and director of the School of Theater and Cinematic Arts at Lipscomb University here in Nashville, which happens to be where my son goes and he's majoring in film and television. So he's getting to spend a lot of time with Steve. You get to spend some time with Steve today. We're thrilled that you're here with us. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And now, without any further ado, here is the host of our show, Ian Crump. Anthony? Yes. It's a big day. It is a very big day. Enneagram 7, Steve Taylor, in the house, filmmaker, artist, producer, professor extraordinaire, among many other things. This is pure seven stuff here, man. This is a guy whose resume is longer than your and my arm put together. Steve, welcome to Typology. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Anthony. When were you first introduced to the Enneagram? My friend, Ben Pearson. Uh, who's a longtime collaborator and uh, cinematographer and photographer. He was way into the Enneagram, I want to say 25, 30 years ago. And he had this massive fat book about it that, um, frankly, I I just could not get into. (laughs) (laughs) I loved the... the, uh, artistry of the Enneagram, just a circle with, you know, mm-hmm. lines connecting. And it felt like something, you know, if you've done the Myers-Briggs or whatever those other things are, not to take anything away from them, but they just seem very kind of clinical. And the Enneagram felt like an artist had designed it. Although I guess that artist is 600 years old or something. Yeah, right. it's been around old. A while. yeah very old artist. Uh, so I was always intrigued by it. And Ben was very much, uh, a student of it. And so I don't know if he ever pegged me and my number, but we would talk a lot about it and we would especially use it when we were working on screenplays because it seemed to be a shortcut to helping create believable characters that felt like they were anchored in reality. Mm. Such a great tool for that, I would imagine. Well, in fact, I've Steve and I have worked together. He has a uh, a course in screenwriting mm-hmm. at Lipscomb that mm-hmm. he teaches, and I come in. I don't know. The last three years, we've done a lecture together on Parks and Rec and the Enneagram. Oh, that is so. And also cool. just screenwriting in general, and yeah. you know how it could be used. Did I do a directing class too, or was that? You might have done a directing class too, but most of them were screenwriting classes, yeah. Yeah. and they were. Uh, I've seen them when they're not interested, and they were very, very interested. 
<laughs> and then when you introduced Parks and Rec uh, a year ago, we just did it again. It was amazing how it all came to life because now you're talking about something that they know. It's hard enough to find anything that they've all seen, right? Right. So it's pretty much down to the office and Parks and Rec because even if I say, you've all seen Star Wars, right? It's like a couple of people, uh, no, <laughs> I've heard of it. So Parks and Rec, they all knew. And that's when you started talking about how each of the 10 characters is represented on the Enneagram. There are actually two sevens, which that's I appreciated. Right. Yes. But otherwise, everyone is like, perfectly represented mm. well i would say that you are a quintessential seven he's nodding his head <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah. i'd say you were a quintessential seven how did you when you read the seven for the first time mm. what did you feel like what you know did you identify right away and what's the cliche i felt seen <laughs> <laughs> um it was you know, I'm I'm only telling you this. I'm going to pretend like you're not in the room. It was uh, the road back to you was the first time that I felt like the Enneagram connected with an artist representing it in a book hmm. because it was I just was not interested in that giant fat book that Ben had. I tried cracking it a few times and it just wasn't working. So it was that book that, first of all, convinced me that I was a seven and second, that I probably sent to 20 different people just because it was a read that I knew they could get into and they would respond to. And then in the story of you, that was when I felt like the uh, all of the types, but for me, the seven in particular felt particularly, um, felt like another step, step in. Mm. And it's been helpful, particularly in the sense of I'm more interested in what I'm doing wrong than in what I'm doing right. And so when you talked about in the seven, the things that can take you off track, it's like, yep, that's so true. Mm. That fear of missing out, that uh, overcommitting. Like, uh, I think the other day, you know, you asked me how things are going. I said, yeah, I got a lot going on. And you said, you know, maybe it's because that's what you choose to do. <laughs> <laughs> Did I say that? <laughs> Which is stuck with me for the last few weeks. It's like, yeah, I chose this. And evidently that's, I'll keep doing that because I guess I like, I like the way that feels. Mm. What does it feel like that is attractive? It feels, it feels like I'm trapped in uh, a cycle of overcommitting um, along with the thrill of seeing things come together. And one of the things I've loved about my life and career is for the most part, it was all project based. So the project had a beginning and a middle and an end. Mm. When I started a record label, it was fun for a while, but I realized, oh, wow, this has no end. And, right. uh, and that wasn't very appealing. And then, you know, I love being at a university and being the filmmaker in residence and being a professor. And in some ways you could argue, I guess, the semester has a beginning, a middle and an end, but the job doesn't necessarily have a end point. So because the university gives me a very wide berth, they let me keep making projects, whether it's music projects or film projects. And again, those things that have a, a beginning and an end are what give me the most joy. Yeah. Well, and that's very seven. That's Talk super about that seven. A little bit, I well, I mean, it, you're describing sort of what I would hope a seven would come to 
be aware of themselves, That's right? That's what I was wondering, yeah. Um, you're describing, you know, sevens have, and when you look at your resume, and Anthony mentioned it all up front in the beginning of the show, you have done so many different things. Um, you have been a film producer, a, a director. You have uh, been a very successful artist. In fact, I can never go out for dinner with, with Steve Taylor and the wives uh, without someone coming over and saying, uh, aren't you Steve Taylor? <laughs> you know, I mean, you're still stopped on the streets by people. You've had a very storied career in music, both in the faith-based world and critically acclaimed in the broader general market world with uh, Chagall, right? I mean, and then you now into teaching, you very seven-ish kind of like moving around, you know, like following the flame, you know, following the fun. Mm -hmm. In a way, nothing wrong with that, right? Following the passion, following the joy, um, and also following the juice. Like, where's the juice here, man? Like, I want to, I want to be on the juice train. I don't want to be on the slow train, right? Yes, right. And um, I think to having projects that have a beginning, a middle, and an end, uh, mitigate the possibility of boredom. Yes. Well, the conversation we were having before we started was I was on a Zoom call that was pretty corporate-ish and it should have been a 20-minute call and it went for an hour and at one point i just put the zoom on mute and my wife was in the other room and i just yelled into my elbow <laughs> i yelled make it stop make it stop <laughs> they just thought i was coughing into my elbow but i just i had I, like oh my gosh when is this going to be over so yes i i don't have a lot of patience for right it. so when things go into out of the mode of startup, getting it going, blast off. Once it goes into being, once you arrive at the space station and things get sleepy, <laughs> you want to, why not Mars? Let's go to Mars, you know? Well, you know in particular that if I stop moving, I actually do fall asleep. Okay, this is true. <laughs> Can, am I allowed to share that? No, of course. So, okay. I, I have so, no secrets. Okay, so... <laughs> When Deb and Steve come over, yeah, and we put on a movie. Now you would think that Steve would want to watch, like, a movie. He's right. a you know he's a filmmaker, right? But if you put Steve down on a chair on a, on a couch, and within five minutes you look over and his eyes have rolled back into his head, and sometimes he's just all together out. Wow. He's he, but that's I mean because you your candle burns bright all day long. And if it stops moving, yeah. it falls asleep. <laughs> it true. snuffs. Yeah. <laughs> it snuffs. Yes, it's so true. You, I just have to ask because, I mean, you, this is kind of what you covered, Ian, but that's. I've seen some sevens who are, have that boredom factor, but they don't really follow through to the end of that's the project. Right. They just jump and jump and jump and jump and don't get a lot done or have to be corralled by somebody else. Um, did you know that about yourself early on and did you kind of make a decision to go okay I'm, I'm, i need to be aware of this and and you know that became a part of kind of your you know way of maneuvering through your art and stuff when i was in college i think is when i read john irving's the world according to garp oh yeah and he has an almost like an essay in the middle of the book where he's talking about a novelist right and his point is you're not a novelist if you don't finish a book mm. and I don't know if that's the thing that did it, but that definitely stuck with me. It's like, if I'm not finishing anything, then I'm not what I claim to be. So I'm pretty good at finishing. Wow, that's mm. good. 
And finish you have. I mean, records, films, against great odds, I might add. Yeah. Against great odds. I mean, um, now I just have to ask you one question. I don't think I've ever asked you this. Is it true that while tracks are being cut, you are known for writing lyrics at the desk, at the recording desk? Like you are writing the lyric as the tracks are, you're just nodding your head yes. That is that is true. That's not, I'm not proud of that, but... Um... <laughs> <laughs> because I, I I don't I mean if they're not right we won't record them um, and usually the lyrics take the longest and go through multiple drafts but there have been a few times when it's just like you have a deadline you know you have to get it finished and deadlines of course always help for, probably right. for all of us but yeah. probably particularly for sevens is it also kind of how you catch a wave a little bit or yeah I, it's good well you know writers i mean you know what it's like if you don't have a deadline you'll find any other excuse to not get the work done so deadlines help yeah i totally i totally understand there's nothing like a cashed advance check and a deadline (laughs) to inspire work right yes very few things that will do that okay so you read the story of you we've spoken about this before like what there were some things in it that were more of a pinch than in the road back to you. Cause the road back to you was a, dis, you know, kind of a primer that described the types, et cetera, but didn't really kind of go down the next level into saying, okay, so here's what you have to work on. Right? Like, guess what? Being a seven is awesome. Fantastic. But here's what's not so awesome and fantastic. What pinched you as you read it? Well, I was reminded why I don't drink mm. <laughs> um, and why I never have. I, I, and was in this case, thankful that I didn't because, you know, that's often a problem with sevens is uh, addictive behavior. I probably have all that addictive behavior. It just hasn't been channeled into alcoholism. Right. Um, mostly because that was a fear I had as a young man that, uh, that ran in my extended family and, uh, that would probably be a good thing to avoid having had experience with, uh, other friends and relatives who do have that issue. I've found that the story of you really helped clarify some things, particularly when I was looking at other types and, uh, it's helped a lot with family relations. I'm, I'm getting a little broader than just sevens here, but, um, you know, my wife and I have been married now for 37 years. She's a nine. It seems like a good combo. <laughs> it's, it's going well so far. Right. And uh, uh, it's helped me understand her better. My daughter is an eight. I don't know where she gets that, but uh, it's helped me understand her a little better. Um, you know, one of the things I found out that I have a natural affinity for sevens and just kind of automatically seem to recognize them and spark. But I've also found much to my discredit that if I'm hanging around an unhealthy seven, I've got so little patience for them. I would have way more patience for other types probably. And I have almost no patience for a really unhealthy seven. So tell me what that problem is. That's probably one of my problems. Projection. Well, there you go. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, we all have that. I mean, if I meet an unhealthy four, I'm sure I see pieces of my own unhealth in them. Mm-hmm. And then there's a part of me that wants to 
repel, right? Or to actually even to judge, to externalize the judgment versus having to deal with what what might be coming up for me Mm. in the interaction, you know? Yes. So, yeah, I mean, I'm often wondering if I'm projecting in conversations with with anybody, you know? If I have a really strong emotional reaction to somebody, one of my first questions is, is might be okay. So uh, where's this coming from? Yeah, what's there is this coming from? It's probably mm. not all from them, especially if my reaction is disproportionate. Mm-hmm. If it's like I'm really turned off, then I'll stop and go. Okay, now that's a little bit more turned off than normal. Is there something going on here beyond maybe that the person is a jerk? Right. But is there something here that maybe you ought to learn? That's fascinating. I work a lot with artists and have developed uh, what I hope are helpful skill sets over the years in understanding kind of an artistic mindset, regardless of kind of what number it's coming from. But sometimes when I'll encounter an artist I'm working with that seems to really have some kind of a serious block, that's probably the one time that it can get pretty frustrated mm. with an artist. And What do you mean by block? Um, something that is clearly keeping them from achieving where they want to go and they i don't know what it is either refuse to recognize it or uh maybe don't think it's that big of a deal whereas uh and and yeah of course i could always be wrong too but from the years of experience and doing a similar thing it's like don't you understand this is what's going to keep you from you know getting where you want to go and uh I probably could use a little more patience in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> yes, maybe. I don't know. Well, you know, to be determined, right? To well, be determined. And you said seven, eight, nine for your family. That's like a interesting combination, right, yes. Ian? Every combination is interesting. Yeah, <laughs> but a seven, you're a seven, your wife's a nine, and your daughter's an eight. That's like... That's that's sort of in the fireworks area. <laughs> Could be. Could be. Yeah. That's Could a better be in way the to fireworks put it. Yeah. area for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, definitely not in the boring. Yeah. Department. That's a better way to put it. Yeah. Right. Not, <laughs> not a lot of boredom going on. No, in your probably house. not a lot of boredom going on. But emotions, feelings. One of the things that I've been around with sevens who are as fast moving as you are. And by the way, you are one of the most fast moving sevens I've ever known. I mean, you are on a run. And it's, it's, a, it's not a bad thing. It's just you're, um, you are a stimulating person. You're a highly stimulated person. You know what I mean? Like you are, um, you kind of approach the world with a kind of wide-eyed kind of like, what's, you know, where you just see opportunity everywhere. There's, you know, and you see it before other people see it. The other thing is like I had a, a mutual friend of ours asked me once if, if I thought you were a three. Mm. And I said, Mm-mm. I said, he's, you are ambitious. You like success, but you're too much of a risk taker in some ways. Please mm. don't take the kinds of risks you take. Mm. You know what I Interesting, mean? Interesting. Yeah. Like you are pretty fearless. I mean, this list of like blue like jazz was a huge risk. There was risk written all over that thing. I probably would have died so much earlier in the process just from the stress like your capacity to kind of channel stress always kind of kind of amazes me um but tell me about your relationship with difficult feelings you know what i mean like, yeah 
pain. Like, what's your relationship like with it? I just try to avoid them almost. I just don't think about them. Really? <laughs> yes. I, it takes a lot, almost like a smack upside the head to make me have to stop and think through uh, what I'm feeling and uh, try to get to the, the bottom of it. Hmm. Um, and of course, that's not good, um, but it, it has to be like a pretty severe, you know, a, a, like a, a death or a uh, or some kind of catastrophe. You know, we talked about Blue Light Jazz, which was a, a really difficult project to get off the ground and seven years in the making and, uh, you know, finally was able to make it and uh make the project I wanted to make and fully anticipated it was going to be a huge success. And it wasn't. And, uh, it, it really stopped me in my tracks. And one of the few times when I had to take a few months of just sitting and living with the fact that this thing that I'd been working on for so long and, and thought was going to be wildly successful just wasn't. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to pretend like, you know, it was anything other than a big drag. Certainly good things came out of it. And that may well be, those are the types of things that God uses to get my attention. But um, it usually takes something big like that for me to have to finally stop and realize, oh yeah, I need to ponder these things and think about it because my instinct is to just keep keep going. Mm. So do, is there a particular feeling and if we look at the humiliation, humiliation is the feeling that really, yes. Uh, the, the, the band, the national has a song, uh, called humiliation. And, uh, what's the, uh, the, the chorus ends with under, under the withering white skies of humiliation. Uh, that terrifies me like making something and it being so bad that it's feels humiliating. Mm. Um, and it's hard to be an artist and not, uh, have to risk that because that's, you know, that's kind of the job description. Uh, but that's interesting. Can you like talk about that? Yeah. Well, you know, if you, I mean, if you're, uh, an artist who's trying to do something that on, at least on some level, hasn't been done before or has some new twist to it or you know the difference between being an artist and being a hack and being a hack um you have to take risks and when you fail and it's not just your failure it's a public failure mm. and it's hard to go out in public and pretend like everything's okay when you know that everybody knows that you failed mm. So yeah, humiliation, that's, that's a big one. You know, it's interesting because I've never had someone say to me that that was the feeling that they most dreaded or didn't want to touch. That was, the, that was the hot stove they didn't want to put their hand on. They could deal with, I've heard people say grief. I've heard people say abandonment. You know, abandonment is not a feeling, it's a state, but you know, whatever. I've never had someone say humiliation. So I want to probe that a little, because I know for me a big one is the feeling I hate is the feeling that is aroused when I disappoint people. Hmm. You know what I mean? Another one for me would be as a four is I hate the feeling of being misunderstood. Right? Like mm -hmm. my, you know, on, on countless levels, right? 
being misunderstood. But humiliation is so interesting because for a seven, a lot of times they would sort of go at a, a seeming failure like you perceive Blue Like Jazz to have been. And they would reframe it so quickly. <laughs> they would go like, well, this was the greatest learning experience of my life and I'm gonna do so much better, you know what I mean? Or right. it, whatever, uh, they would have a complete reframe. A three would spin it. And we won't go into the difference between spinning and reframing, but that's a whole different thing. Um, so when you talk about humiliation, is it, is it the, that you've disappointed yourself or others? Is it the being judged by other people as, you know, having worked hard and come up with empty? You know what I mean? Like yeah. what, when you say humiliation, what does that mean? So I am a really good cheerleader when I've got friends that are doing things. And, um, but, you know, as a younger man, I, <laughs> I wouldn't do it in public or even necessarily with friends, but I could judge things pretty harshly. And um, uh, I'm hoping that some of that edge wore off just by virtue of having been knocked down a few times and knowing how hard, you know, making music had its difficulties. Making movies is the hardest thing I've ever done. And, uh, you know, now I'm impressed with anybody who can actually get one finished and it be reasonably competent. Um, but movies are judged as success or failure on a Friday night. There's a two hour window when after seven years of working on something, you know whether it's gonna work commercially or not commercially. And that two hour window on that Friday night was pretty tough to deal with. And it's not just my uh, failure of a uh, lack of commercial success, but it's all the people that had put so much into wanting to see the movie succeed, people that had put money into making it succeed, you know, 4,500 Kickstarter backers that made the movie possible, uh, most of which I'd actually called and thanked personally because when we put the project together and in the early days of Kickstarter, I never imagined it would be successful. So I said, among other things, uh, give us $10 or more and I'll call and thank you personally. And I ended up with a notebook of 3,600 uh, phone calls to me. You make. made 3,600 phone calls? I, I made 3,600 phone calls over the course of the next year. Um, yes. Uh, the, the, the thing that I heard the most um, of the people that picked up was, well, I know you got a lot of calls to make, so I won't keep you long. <laughs> but <laughs> having talked to that many people who in, had invested, you know, 25 bucks, 50 bucks, 100 bucks to see that movie happen and believed in it so much, it felt like a I felt like I was letting them down too. Oh, so man. it was a very, it was very uh, close. You know, it was tough for Don Miller who'd put time and effort and money into it and belief into it. And, you know, thankfully he was, uh, he's a very understanding guy, but I felt like I'd let him down. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> it doesn't mean you stop doing it. Uh, it's just that knowing that that could be around the corner is uh sobering yeah it is hard to be an artist of any kind isn't it <laughs> yes and people think that if you have some measure of success that these anxieties go away 
but in many ways they get worse. Mm. And here's the, the dirty secret that most people don't talk about. It is never enough. No matter how successful you are, no matter how uh, wide the acclaim might be, it is never enough. I will always feel like I've been a little ripped off. And uh, that's, as I teach creative students, that's one of the first things I tell them is just get used to that feeling and find a way to be grateful in spite of that, because that's what you'll always be feeling. No matter how successful you are, you'll always think, I kind of, I, I deserve a little more acclaim for that. <laughs> I deserve a little more recognition. It is just never enough. Mm. I don't want to put you on the spot, but have you felt that? Do you think that's correct? Definitely. Definitely. Well, and I think it, it's a really complicated topic, right? Um, because when you have a success, um, it aggravates all kinds of insecurities and things in you that you thought went away in seventh grade, right? Uh, and, you know, I've had a lot of, you know, releasing a new book right after the road back to you. It was a horrible experience releasing another book after that. How do you do that again? You, you don't, right? I mean, right. the chances yeah. of doing that, you know, I am not Led Zeppelin. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't put out the best record in rock history and then, and then up it, you know, the next time around, you know what I mean? Or, you know, so I think I'm glad that it happened to me later in life. You know, I was in my fifties when that book dropped, you know, and so I, I felt a little bit more prepared, but I was actually unprepared for how ill prepared I was. And, you know, I, yeah, so it's, yeah, it's difficult. I think it was Elizabeth Gilbert who wrote Eat, Pray, Love. Yes. Uh, wrote very convincingly about what that's like to try to follow up a success like that. Mm. And she didn't. Right. And she knew she didn't. There was no way to spin it. It's right. just whatever I do will never measure up to the success of that book. Mm -hmm. And uh, I somehow, I, maybe just by putting those thoughts in words f so the rest of us can read it, uh, that was probably a gift in itself. Yeah. I think for me that I've had good moments more, more often than not where I say, I'm really grateful for what my life became in the last seven or eight years. And you had a front row seat to it. I mean, the first time you and I met, I had just written Jesus, my father, the CIA and me. And then it was another couple of years before the road back to you. Um, and, you know, I navigated some of it well, some of it not so well. Um, but I do have a lot of moments where I go, well, you know, you know, you got to see something really cool. And you got to be a part of something really cool and to enjoy it and uh, to do, to have that moment, you know? Yes. And the cure is gratitude. Like, that's the thing. My mom, bless her, is uh, always quoting that to our family. Uh, God, give us one thing more, grateful hearts. And I think that's, that's the cure for that kind of mm. feeling of... Mm nothing being quite what you'd hoped for is just gratitude right yeah it could have been so much less <laughs> <laughs> it could have gotten so much worse nobody died right. yes nobody got hurt yes, we're okay right. so how are you different then in the wake of the 
Blue Light Jazz experience? Like, how did it? Because, and I, actually, I was there for it. Right. And what's interesting is, although our friendship, let me see, how long ago was that? That would have been Eight ten years, years ago that it actually premiered at oh, South so by we Southwest. Were just friends. We had just really become friends. Right. Okay. I first met you when doing a screening for a handful of people in Ben's basement. I remember that. Yeah. Yes, I was new to town, and you. Right. Yes, 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 yes. I remember that. Um, and they were not rushes. What were they? They were just. It was rups. just. That was like an assembly cut. Right. So it was really, really early in the process. Yeah. It was a terrible idea to show that to anybody, but you sat through it. <laughs> no, I remember it well. Um, so I guess the question I have for you is, I kind of had a front row seat to the experience. I didn't know you super well uh, at that time. I'm just wondering how it reshaped you. In some pretty significant ways. You talked about sevens being risk takers, and that's certainly been my uh, MO is again, thankfully I'm not a gambler because I just put all the chips on the next thing. Yeah. I have a friend of mine who, who, who's, uh, actually the child of a, of a person I know who has a gambling addiction. And this is his great quote. He said, I never saw a hand I didn't think was a winner. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But That's it's so a little good. dangerous, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So keep so, going. So yeah. So the commercial failure of blue light jazz, put uh put us right on the brink of i would like to think i would never declare bankruptcy but it was that was certainly the next option and i had a, a person reached out to me who um i'm pretty hard to track down um so uh he somehow tracked me down through the the producers and left some messages and they finally said this guy wants to talk to you and i was like okay i mean after you've made 3500 phone calls like you know why not what's another one <laughs> and uh he was a guy who had been uh affected by the music that i'd made and i don't know if he just had an intuitive sense or something but he had also been very successful in business and just asked if he could meet me and he flew out to Tennessee, he was uh, a guy in his early 40s, um, uh, really pleasant guy. We got to know him over the weekend, and uh, he said, would you be up for some help? And it wasn't especially financial help, although he, he for some reason, wanted to give us a little help on that front, too, which was completely unexpected and, uh, you know, surprising on its own but what he really wanted to do is just help me i think uh after that pretty severe uh slap upside the head kind of reorient life to where i wasn't putting everything on the next project and for lack of a better term, he just kind of became a coach and still is and has become one of my best friends as well. But uh, it was really helpful to have somebody who was in your corner and had no other agenda. And well, I mean, I've got so many great friends who don't have an agenda, but he had no connection to any work that I did or anything. He just was a great friend and a great kind of coach and it turns out he does it for a lot of people including really successful people and uh 
people living in homeless shelters. And, uh, and that was a pretty, uh, pretty big change and has been a, a, a big blessing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and as a fellow Christian, um, of course we connected in that regard as well. So that kind of made it all, uh, gave it the same foundation. Mm. So that was a, a big help. And it was hard for me. I do not like asking for help. I do not like, I, I would like to think that I'm generous with, uh, uh, people, but I do not like asking anybody for help. Mm. And I definitely needed help. And it came at a really good time. I think in some ways, maybe my experience of you, and we've spent a lot of time together, um, is that you're kind of a uh, extra, an extroverted introvert. You're very private. You're a very private person. You know, a lot of sevens you think would just be like foaming at the mouth, you know, spilling all kinds of stuff. But you're actually quite private. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah. I, I, part of it might have just come from when you've lived in the public eye for a period of time, that just becomes your kind of default. Yeah. And so, yeah. That's interesting. I think I'm private. There's a lot of parts of my life that I'm not. It's actually why I dislike Instagram, I think, and stuff like that. I don't like people seeing my life. Right. Yes. You, you know what I mean? Yes. Social media for me is strictly a sales tool. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I should change it to just say only uh, only on when I'm sewing something. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> sales Yeah. I know. It's it's a hard universe, that one. That's a hard, hard universe. Of all the things you've done, which is like a long list of things, what what has been the favorite one, if that's possible to say, or what period of your life, as you look back, was your favorite one? There was a trip, going back to Ben Pearson, um, that I took uh, after I'd made an album called Squint. And um, the record label said uh, it was a time when long-form videos were something and they would sell. And so they said, look, we'll give you $70,000, make whatever you want just as long as we can It was a lot of it. money in those days. It was a lot of money, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't enough money to make something wildly ambitious, but I figured out a way to make something wildly ambitious, which is, uh, so I took the $70,000 and uh, bought four round-the-world airline tickets. At that time, on Delta Airlines, as long as you kept flying in the same direction, you could go anywhere that Delta Airlines flew. And so uh, Ben, who had only shot photos before, uh, we bought an old airy 35-millimeter film camera, and uh, I convinced him that, you know, the only difference was now the film would be moving faster (laughs) inside the camera. (laughs) So uh, he was a cinematographer, my dear friend, Russ Long, who was, uh, had been my uh, engineer for all the albums that I'd made and produced. You know, Russ, yeah. yes. Uh, he did sound playback. And um, my friend Mark Hollingsworth, who lives two doors down from you, was the road manager. And uh, we shot uh, seven music videos, but they were all shot in at what at the time were really exotic locations. We were the first uh, film crew to go to uh, Hanoi in North Vietnam since they'd paraded POWs through the streets. Um, we went to Nepal. We went to the United Arab Emirates right when it was just starting to take a turn. Uh, we went to Turkey, to Ireland and England and Hong Kong in Thailand and we just shot these movie uh, music videos on 35 millimeter film and there was a moment 
when we were in Vietnam and we were on a boat and we just finished for the day and the sun is going down and we're riding back down the perfume river, just the three of us and the four of us and the person piloting the boat. And it was just this sense of, I can't even describe it. It just was, we'd just done something. We'd had a really good day. Uh, it's cool. We're seeing a place we'd never seen before. Uh, it was just, oh man, it was, it was just one of those moments and projects where so many things should have gone wrong and everything went right. And when you finish something like that, uh, and it works, I guess that's what the drug is, is that it's, it gives you a, a feeling that's kind of indescribable and you just want to figure out a way to do it again. Mm. Yeah, I'd love to know what that feeling is. <laughs> I was going to say five words you never hear in the music industry anymore. Go make whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> you used to hear that every now and used then. Used to hear it, yeah. But not anymore. What is the name of that project, by the way? It was called uh, Squint Movies from the Soundtrack. Movies from the Soundtrack. I yeah, I think that. you can only see it on uh, YouTube and parts. Okay. Um, it's an old transfer and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, it was uh, one of those projects where everything seemed to work. Wow. When you're FedExing film reels out of Nepal, there's just a lot of things that could go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> but you've parlayed this sort of seven way of being in the world into just great creative success mm -hmm. and or just creative endeavors success or not you just described like a sevens like fantasy life you know i got four guys we're gonna go around the world we're gonna do this we're gonna do that and you know it does take a certain and i don't take this wrong it takes a certain kind of ballsy narcissism <laughs> that's a good way to put it you know what i'm saying yes. and you know what the world needs ballsy narcissists yeah we don't want the unhealthy malignant narcissists right, right? but people who have a higher degree of confidence in themselves and that the universe will cooperate with yeah. their dreams right. and we can make this you know it's like this undying optimism which if it doesn't become toxic optimism what mm -hmm. i sometimes call toxic positivity right because sometimes man people get all kinds of positive and it's like no 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 that is that is not good right. you know yeah. like you are leading this is like a bad case of the music man you are leading the the parade off of the road and people are going to get hurt i just love these stories of of your exploits mm -hmm. these wonderful exploits and there are these moments at the end and i i'm going to spend some time thinking about well what is that feeling of transcendence because mm -hmm. i've had that as well those moments where oh and the only way i've been able to because it's kind of a mystical experience it is mm -hmm. yeah those moments where the, where you're on a boat, you're somewhere in the sky, the blue is more vivid, the greens of the trees are more vivid, the light on the river is more vivid. And it's something in you just, for me, it feels like, oh, everything's connected, everything belongs. Yeah. I don't and even... it's an inside, it's just a deep sense of gratitude that you get to be at that moment and mm. experiencing it. Yes, mm. yeah. And maybe it's in that moment that you realize, because I do think that we experience the most joy when we have most transcended ourselves, ourself. We've, we've no longer attached to it. We've somehow or another moved beyond identifying with the self to mm -hmm. identifying with the big, the big picture, the big reality of 
the universe. You know what I mean? What you just said is why I went from being a, a recording artist to being a producer and then ultimately becoming a filmmaker is because as a recording artist, it was just exhausting to wake up every day and think, how am I going to get people to do stuff for me? And it's so, even at the best of it, it's just so me centered. Mm. Um, and it's a particularly difficult place for a Christian to live in because of who we claim to be following, you know, who made himself of no reputation and took on the form of a servant. Um, and yet, you know, you're, you're in a, you're in a job that demands attention and eyeballs and focus on you. Mm -hmm. So when I started producing other artists, it was such a relief to wake up and think, what can I do to serve this artist the best? And then going into filmmaking, that's the most collaborative thing I've ever worked on by far. And it's such a, a communal uh, experience to do that, that, and teaching is the same thing. Teaching then, of course, is just purely trying to serve students and communicate with them and help them. So that's probably where increased satisfaction and gratitude and joy comes is just by getting out of a, a, a scenario every day where you're trying to figure out how to get people to how to get pay attention to you. Well, it sounds like you have navigated the journey from being an artist who was very well known to not being in the spotlight, and certainly in the way that you were in the 80s, early 90s, right? I mean, like, for some people, that's a actually a fatal journey. They never are able to transition, right? We just know tons of people like that, right? They just did not transition well, right? And you've just transitioned beautifully. You know, to, uh, and I think part of it is the mindset you just described to, to make the transition from having it be all about me to, because it is, especially in the, you know, obviously in the Christian commercial world, if we can even, it's amazing that we even put those words together in the same sentence, <laughs> right. but there is one. Yes. Whether it's in book publishing or music or, I mean, obviously that's all changed a lot, but golly whiz. I mean, the moment you put money, celebrity, Christian faith, and, and artistry into the same bucket and shake, that is one like flammable concoction. <laughs> and a lot of people don't, I mean, we just have countless stories we could tell people yeah. who did not, did not survive the blast of those four things colliding with each other, right? But then, I, I, yeah, hopefully everything you've said is, is true, but then, uh, you know, the band that brought me to Nashville, Chagall Guevara, uh, which had a brief uh, run, made a really good album that was not commercially successful. and uh, But critically acclaimed. Critically acclaimed, yes, we album. definitely got that. Um, so we've actually reformed, and I had a, a, a show business mentor back in the day who uh, encouraged his sort of students to uh, find that vulnerable spot inside themselves and he said don't believe you don't have it if you were a totally well-rounded individual you wouldn't feel the need to get up on stage in the first place and so you know why are we we're doing a show at the ryman this summer why are we going through this torture except that that's obviously that's still there like we're not doing it for money but it just sounds like fun and uh 
So yeah, I'm going through it again. So I guess I haven't really escaped the gravitational pull of that. <laughs> but hold on a second. You, you just described it. It just sounds like fun. There you go. Yeah. That's the gravitational pull, right? That's, Is it just that sounds like sense. fun. Yeah. And I, I don't, there's nothing wrong with, wrong with that as long as it's tempered with good self-awareness. You know, I think. I mean, that, there's nothing wrong with wanting to do something for the fun. Yeah. I, I have a question uh, regarding the uh, show, the upcoming show. Will there be any cartwheels? Oh yes, so I've got to, I've been working on those because you know it's kind of in your wanna, backyard. I don't want to disappoint the fans. Yes, I'm uh, I'm gonna I'm 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 gonna be uh, be prepared. Sweet, yeah. Amazing. So yes, July second at the Ryman Auditorium. If anybody's interested, we will uh, we will be there. I will be there. Trying to I'll do cartwheels. I saw you guys at uh, Main Street in Murfreesboro years ago. No way. Ago. That was a long time and ago. It was a killer show. You were living in Nashville at that time? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So I look forward we to it. We remember Main Street well. <laughs> All right. So here, here's my final question. This is a question I like to ask. What is your guilty little pleasure? Guilty pleasure? Yeah. What, what's it that nobody knows about right now? Like, is it, a, you know, it could be, what do you have a guilty pleasure? Could be, you know, food it could be a show you're watching that you know, i don't want people to know that i'm really into the, you know what i mean like yes it's that uh netflix show bad vegan oh yeah you've seen it right i have yeah yeah you I, love that yeah i don't know what it is about it <laughs> what's seriously let's let's talk about this should i lie down yeah right why did i why well was for I so people by that so show? for people who haven't seen bad vegan yet uh, it's a, it's the story, uh, the true story of a woman who was the target of a scam artist, a con artist. She owned like the most successful vegan restaurant. Was it in L.A.? In New York City. In New York. Yeah. Right. Uh, and it, they were killing it. They were crushing it. And she led this guy into her life. And it, it, it's what's so amazing is that she didn't see it. Like she didn't see what was happening because it's like so obvious. You want to like just grab her off the street and shake her by the lapels and go, no, 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 no. Wow. Do you? And even like I think when she kind of saw it, she didn't refuse. She refused to believe it. Right. What, right. What wow. Do you? Yeah. She she was really intelligent. Graduated from Stanford. Wharton, I think it was Wharton Business School or was it Stanford? But she yeah. went to Stanford. She yeah. was not a like a uneducated person. Right. And you know she fell in with a guy who was convincing her that her dog was going to be immortal. <laughs> No as you would wow as you would <laughs> so there was something fascinating about we were talking about this earlier you know kind of the invasion of the body snatchers is when you when you know people that uh somehow you know some person or force gets in their life and they become completely blind to that mm -hmm. and you know and it's a reminder i guess we're all susceptible, susceptible to level, it yeah. right yeah, yeah. But this is a pretty extreme example. Yeah, you know, it, 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 it's a perverse kind of entertainment, right? Because I've actually been listening to a podcast, too, called Scamfluencers, which is about scam artists. And it, I think it sounds like an NPR, huh. you know, kind of a yeah. thing. Our, our capacity for self-deception or to be deceived is amazing. Yeah. You know, and... You know, we had a conversation on the porch for a few minutes before we came up to the studio. And um, I 
I did think as you were pulling up, I was just in a moment of reverie outside, and I, I was like, God, you know, it is hard to be human because mm -hmm. it, you know, we we see things. It's so hard to see clearly, you know, a lot of the time, you know, and um, and to have certainty that your motives are right, you know, like. And sometimes you have to act. You can, you know you can't stop to wait for a definitive and you know answer like you know. But yeah, the capacity for self deception to be deceived and to deceive oneself is just amazing. There's this whole Chinese word zikiki ren, mm -mm. and the whole idea is you deceive yourself in the process of deceiving others. So even people that are scammers, they are somehow have deceived themselves to the point that they are able to deceive others. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. That's what's the name of that? What's that Ziki called? Ziki Ren. Ziki Ki Ren. Chinese I'm feeling word. a movie. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm feeling a movie, man. So, you know, we just did this uh, filmmakers retreat in Texas together and uh, or attended it and which was really extraordinary. I, I'm still kind of riding on the glow of that thing a little bit. Are you? Yes. That was an extraordinary weekend. It yeah. was like, what, 30 of us? It was a small group. Yeah. And it was an, imp I mean, myself aside, right? Because I was like, there were three authors there and then the rest of the people were all in the film business. And it was a, a pretty austere group. I mean, this, I don't want to mention names because it was kind of a private event, but there was, you know, there were a bunch of Academy Awards in the room. Yes, right. right. And um, actors and uh, directors and screenwriters and, and whatnot. And I loved watching you because I, I said to Annie later, I said, you know, I've never seen this side of Steve. It was like you were in a candy shop. Mm -hmm. Like you were just running around. I could see that your speech was kind of pressured. You were just talking to people. And it was so much fun to watch you. Um, you know, just beam among your people, you know, mm. and to see it. And we heard a lot of those things that we mentioned earlier, which is the hardship of being creatives, being risk takers, um, of being scrutinized, um, of trying to work faith into Hollywood or into the film. You know what I mean? Like, and there were a lot of tears at that thing. Um, yeah, it was that was an extraordinary experience, wasn't it? It was. It was uh, so many um, so many filmmakers who aren't necessarily uh, public people. You know, they've decided to be behind the camera instead of on the other side, um, along with some actors who are very public people, um, and all of them there to uh have an experience that they i'm guessing none of them have ever had ever had before mm -hmm. i'd had it a few times because i this is the third time i've been to that retreat but uh it was uh beautiful seeing uh all these creative people uh just enjoying the company of other creative people without needing to get anything mm. from from them yeah well, okay, we got a show on July 2nd at the Ryman. Chagall Guevara is playing, is back, is back. And we'll have, uh, those of you who know, Over the Rhine, they're going to be opening right. for us. Wow, and of great. course, they're incredible. So we're really yeah. excited about that, too. So everybody has to rush out and do that. Steve, where, what do you want people to know uh, about you and learn about the things that you're doing? 
Um, you know, we've, we, I was way in our conversation where I, we, you asked me what was going on. There's a lot going on. Um, I'm working with uh, my longtime friend, Mike Naraki, the co-creator of VeggieTales and voice of Larry the Cucumber. He's uh, got a new animated series that I'm producing called The Dead Sea Squirrels. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Have you never seen the trailer for The Dead Sea Squirrels? No. I'm telling you, man. Get ready, because this thing's going to be a blockbuster. It is a scream. It's been really fun. I, I realize the reason I've never tried animation before is because it takes so freaking long. Yeah. But uh, it's been an education, and Mike is the world's nicest guy and a blast to work with, and we're getting to do music together for it as well. So that's been really fun. And um, there's always film projects. Uh, my grad assistant, uh, had a experience teaching English in Taiwan between between college and grad school and I encouraged her to turn it into a screenplay and helped her with the development and so we were just in Taiwan a few weeks ago uh, filming um, the movie called Sun Moon which is uh, named because of the area in Taiwan that we we're at uh, Sun Moon Lake so that's uh, will be coming out sometime this fall mm. and um, uh, yeah other projects in various stages of development but uh, plenty to keep me engaged guiding my son and people like oh him man justice is so path. good <laughs> <laughs> yes anthony's son justice is part of our film program and uh just one of those guys that uh, jumps in and is always ready to learn and he speaking of dead sea squirrels he did the uh location sound when oh, we were cool. shooting a promo for it oh, so wow that's yeah, awesome he's very talented that's awesome thank you for what you're doing with him appreciate it well everybody this has been our interview with my good friend steve taylor it's been a joy brother I love you. I love Deb. I love Sarah. I love everything about the things you've done with your life. And, um, you know, I look forward to all the many times that we will be together and the things that we'll learn. And um, you've been a great, a great mentor is not the right word, but life teacher for me. It's been good to have you on the journey with me. Well, likewise, Ian, thank you. And Anthony, always a pleasure. Same. Thank you. And Typology Tribe, may you have love, may you have joy, may you have peace, may you have healing, may you have rest. Until next time.